following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. All right, we're going to start a three-week series. Uh, actually, I guess it would be a four-week series. As we look at the story of Jesus' nativity and birth and the the situation that surrounds it. So what I'm doing is pulling from a kind of a harmony of the Gospels. A lot of this comes from Luke, but you're going to see some things interjected from some of the other Gospels as well. Just to bring in every detail that the Gospel writers give us about what was happening at the time of Jesus' birth. So we're going to cover a fair amount of Scripture. I want to do what I can to just let the text speak for itself as we enter into this time of year where we really focus on Jesus and the gift that his birth was to us. So I'm going to begin today with actually the story of Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth, and kind of the precursor to um, the angel's announcement to Mary, the songs that we're singing. In fact, what we're focusing on this morning is on two songs that have often been called the first two Christmas carols, which I don't think is quite fair because Christmas wasn't celebrated until around the 300s, at least in the church. So this is kind of applying something that didn't actually fit at the time. But nonetheless, they're the first two songs we see recorded in Scripture associated with a celebration, the joy of the birth of Jesus. All right, let's start reading. This is going to be in Luke chapter 1, and it's going to be starting in verse 26. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Some things to note. Uh, Luke is writing this down based on the testimony of eyewitnesses. He interviewed people. He learned what had happened. He carefully investigated things, and he's writing this to someone named Theophilus because he says, I want you to know with certainty that these things that we're talking about, they're not myths, they're not legends, there's not things people made up. I've done the research. These things really happened. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God. Before I go further, do you remember in Hebrews, they talked about priests who were the descendants of Aaron and that Jesus was greater than them as the great high priest? You're bringing up Aaron in this passage just because it's significant. This was a family with a reputation. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. The incense is kind of symbolic of the priest's prayers to God on behalf of the people. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. Something to note. Uh, This takes place around 4 B.C., around 300 B.C. was when the Jewish community believed God had left them. 
They had gone into Babylonian captivity. Uh, this was three or 400 BC. Then they went into Roman rule and they just, their belief was that God had left them. And so you would expect a priest to kind of be ready for God to speak with him in some fashion, but God has been silent for three or 400 years. And suddenly, here is God through his messenger angel appearing to Zechariah. So Zechariah is startled. He's gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. So your initial thought, if you're Zechariah, is thank God. For hundreds of years, we didn't know if God was listening. God is listening. Awesome. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you're to call him John. He'll be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord." So he's going to take a Nazarite vow. He's not going to have alcohol. There's certain things that went with this kind of calling. But man, this is an awesome thing for Zechariah to hear about this son that he's going to have. But Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens. Because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. For he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. All right, so here's part of the dilemma of this story. I mean, here's Zechariah, a priest of God. And early on in the account, we are told that he and his wife were righteous. They were blameless. They observed God's commands and decrees blamelessly. I mean, he seems like a good guy. And an angel appears to him. God speaks to him. And a priest is who you would expect God to speak to. And his response as this angel gives him this message, it says, your prayer has been heard and God is going to use your son mightily. And Zechariah's response is not to go, oh, thank God, bring it. Zacharias is, are you sure? Are you sure, he says to an angel of God who appears to him while he's burning incense? And the thing is, this thing the angel tells him about him and his wife is not unprecedented. This, in many ways, this story is meant to connect the Jewish reader to the story of Abraham and his wife, Sarah, where the angels, the messengers of God, appear to them and say, you're going to have a child, and they go, we're old, how can this be? Zechariah, the priest, knows this story. He knows that this is not a barrier to God accomplishing God's will. And his response is not to go, oh, I know this story of Abraham. This has happened before. Amazing. His response is to go, basically, uh, prove it. I need a sign. And so Gabriel says, done, and strikes him mute. There's a lot of speculation about why it is that 
Zechariah loses his speech. And as I've been reading this week, I'm not sure that I land firmly on all the different reasons people give. Pretty much everybody agrees there's something, there's a message through this. This is a pointed thing. I lean toward the idea that Zacharias is now going to have to take a break as a high priest because one of the things the priest did was he led people through public benedictions and blessings, and now he couldn't do it. So now he's going to take some time off. He's going to have a lot of time to think, to study what we would call the Old Testament again, time to pray. He's going to have some time to reconsider his response to God. But whatever the reason, and I... I feel like I haven't found the explanation I'm looking for. I feel like I'm missing something. The people understood it as a sign. And we'll see this later once again. That the people understand God is sending a message in some fashion. And I think I would just note this about this section. That knowing what God has done is very different from believing what God can do. So Zechariah knows what God has done. He knows God can do the miraculous. Even in this moment when the angel says to him, you and your elderly wife, you've never had children. God's going to give you children. Zacharias knows what God has done, but he doesn't apparently believe that God will do it. So this is a reminder of a couple things. One is that the nature and character of God doesn't change. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if God is a God who can bring children to the childless, if he was a God like that, he is a God like that. And, and it makes me wonder, too, as, as we see God's response to Zechariah, I, I wonder if there's more to the story about this issue in their life. Because the Bible shows a God who hears and answers prayer. That's what God has done. That's what God does. We have the record in Scripture of what God has done to give us a framework to understand the kind of God we serve. So who God was is who God is, is who God will be. So does God hear and answer prayer according to the record of Scripture? Has God done that in the past? Yeah. So does God hear and answer prayer today? Absolutely, because that's what God has done. Uh, when we read the record of Scripture, does God always answer the way we want God to? No. That doesn't mean we get what we want automatically. But God, who heard and answered prayer, as recorded in the Scripture, hear and answers prayer today. Does God redeem, or, or let's start with the past. Has God redeemed some of the most vile and broken people in human history? Absolutely. Can God redeem some of the most vile and broken people in our world today? Absolutely. He's a savior. That's what he's good at. He's good at redeeming. In the Bible, has God shown himself to be faithful even in the midst of faithless people? Yeah. Is God faithful today to us even as we stumble and fall? Absolutely. God doesn't change. One of the things, one of the reasons scripture is given to us is to show us what God is like as we see him interact with humanity throughout history so that we have confidence this is the kind of God that we serve today. It's the thing that really strikes me about the story of Zechariah is that scripture is given to us to build hope, to build trust. 
And the question is, when hard times come in our lives, when we're in situations where it's hard for us to believe that God is present or that God is able or that God has our best interest in mind, we go back to Scripture and we ask the question, how has God shown himself to be in the past? That's the kind of God I serve today. And my sense is that what Zacharias was given was time to step back, in this case from ministry, as we might call it today, and reflect and read again and make sure what he knew in his head was getting into his heart. So let's pick up from that point. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After that, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. For the record, not having children, um, this idea that it's a disgrace in that culture, having children was seen as a direct sign of God's blessing. And if you didn't have children, it was kind of assumed by the community that somehow you had fallen out of God's blessing. This this text makes clear Elizabeth just wasn't able to conceive. It wasn't an issue of whether God blessed her or not. So Elizabeth's comment here, this taking away her disgrace among the people, understand that in her community it was a big deal. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary is greatly troubled. I, I find this interesting that the, the angel says to her right out of the gate, probably knowing she's going to be scared too, like first thing is like, listen, you're highly favored. And Mary is troubled. She knows something's coming because angels appearing to people just wasn't something that happened in the normal course of events. She wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You'll be with child and give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus, and he'll be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. But how can this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? Now, without going into a lot of discussion about the original language and context and things like that, just know this. Mary's question is not echoing Zacharias's question. It's not a question that that brings with it doubt and kind of a challenge and maybe even a reflection of some bitterness in some sense. She's not asking prove it. In the context, it seems to be just a response of amazement and wonder. Mary's like, "No way! How is this possible? This this is going to be a miracle." Like she understands right off the bat. Something really unusual is going on here. And the angel answers, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. I find it interesting where this kind of language is used other places in the Bible to describe the presence of God or what the Holy Spirit does. So, the power of the highest shall overshadow you reminds us of the opening words of Genesis where the writer describes the dawn of life and creation in these words, that the Spirit of God hovered or moved or brooded over the face of the deep. It seems to be the same idea here, that the Holy Spirit will do the same thing with Mary. 
Uh, a, a man named Ellicott wrote, another aspect of the Spirit's work is quickening the dead chaos to life, that's Genesis 1-2, and being the source of life to all of creation. So we know once again from the history of Scripture, the Holy Spirit brings life. And then finally, um, the cloud that overshadows the group during the transfiguration in Mark 9, it's the same kind of language that's used there. In Exodus 33, when Moses is covered in the cleft of the rock as God, God passes by, same idea there, that God's presence, his Holy Spirit, often is present and hovering and brooding over people. And many commentators note, and this seems to be across the board, the Jewish readers would have understood this to be a recreation story. This is in some ways the retelling of Genesis 1. Um, in Genesis 1, God says, let there be light. And then John says, he was that light. Right In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Now, God who said, let there be light, says, let there be light again. And it's the light of the world in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit hovered over the world and brought life. And now the Holy Spirit hovers over Mary and brings life. And as the story unfolds throughout the Gospels, you, you actually see a lot of hints that this is meant to be read as another creation story. A new world is starting. The new Adam is here. Let's continue reading. After the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing, nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And the angel left her. And I'm struck by the idea that Mary's response is just loaded um, or is shorthand for a lot of what was going on in Mary. So Mary says, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. That seems like an easy answer. But here's the deal. For Mary to become pregnant, and she's not married, is scandalous in that community. Joseph would have every right to divorce her, though they weren't married, being in this period of what we would call an engagement was the same as. Joseph could put her away. She would be ostracized by the community. This was not a small issue. And Mary's response, and I, I have to assume, and the Bible doesn't say it, but I have to assume that Mary as a normal human being was experiencing a ton of turmoil inside. But the angel had said, don't be afraid. You're highly favored. God is with you. And Mary's response is, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. I don't know if that's a little dig to Zechariah there or not, but blessed is she who has believed what the Lord has said. 
And this brings us to what's called the Magnificat. It's a song where Mary magnifies the Lord. Now, depending on your translation, like the one you see on the screen, it might say proclaimed, but the word has to do with magnification. This is a song that throughout 2,000 years, in fact, if you go on YouTube and look up this song, you'll find all kinds of versions where people tried to put this to music and capture the grandness of this particular song. Uh, This song, just so you know, might not have been original with Mary. It's patterned after the song of Hannah, which we read in 1 Samuel 2. So Hannah, just quick historical footnote here. Her song was celebrating the coming of King David. What Mary's song is doing is celebrating the heir of King David because there was a covenant God made with David and said, David, from your ancestors eventually will come the Messiah. And so now here is the Messiah. So here's Mary patterning her song after Hannah. Hannah celebrated David. Mary is celebrating the true king and the line of David, the one who's going to fulfill the promise of the Messiah that God had made all those centuries ago. And this new king is going to bring this new covenant back to this idea that the world's almost being recreated through Jesus in this moment. Now we're going to see the true Israel that we talked about in Hebrews, where now this is all believers who are the children of God. This is now going to be an age where God's spirit lives in God's people, enabling them to keep this covenant. And there seems to be hints throughout the Old Testament that While the Holy Spirit was in people and visited people and often brooded over people and dwelt among them, there's some kind of shift taking place that now the Holy Spirit is moving in in a way that perhaps wasn't quite there before and taking up permanent residence in the lives of believers. And so Mary sings this song. My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things in me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. So the song is very clear. And many people throughout the last 2,000 years have come back to this over and over again. That what this song is celebrating is that people who are, who have arrived in the eyes of the world, that is, the rich, the exploiters, the powerful, the rulers, the greedy, people who by earthly standards have it made because they've reached some level in life where they can control others. They can demand respect. They can do what they want. They don't need God. They've got this figured out. This song reminds us that, that no, it's the humble, it's the lowly, it's the powerless that the Messiah has come to lift up. And those who are full of themselves and glory and their power and their fame and their wealth, God's come to humble them. But to the lowly, God has come to lift them up. So the mighty one does great things for the humble, not the proud. The mighty one lifts up the lowly and he scatters rulers. The mighty one fills the hungry, but he scatters those with plenty. 
the mighty one, he not only cares for the lowly, the poor, and the hungry, he fights for them. He lifts them up. Uh, there's a, a number of people over the years who have talked about this as a song of revolution. Like this song kind of dropped a bomb in human history. Not because it was calling God's people to rise up and fight with a sword. Jesus makes this clear. But it, it's a song of, of spiritual and internal revolution. It, it's telling us the Messiah is going to upend the standards of the world and the way in which the world judges what makes someone good and important and worthwhile. The Messiah is going to come to the outcast, the lonely, the depressed, the sad, the starving. The Messiah has come not only to lift them up, but to fight for them and make sure that they are saved, not just in a spiritual extent, sense that's the most important part. But the Messiah has come to bring justice. And justice has to do with making things right. So the smug and the self-satisfied, they're not favored by God. The successes of the world are shallow. Religious or legalistic pride and how good we can be on our own is in fact straw. If I can point out, though Luke points out that Zachariah was a guy who was blameless. Zacharias was a guy whose faith did not hold up in a key moment. It wasn't just his outward blamelessness that counted. There was something about his heart that mattered too. So who does God give mercy to? That's the humble, the hungry, the forgotten, the overlooked, the ones who fear God. It's the gluttons, the proud, who just gorge themselves with power and things. Uh, they need to look out because God has come to bring justice. So Jesus, the mighty one, is going to be born to a shamed mother in poverty in a disdained village populated by a conquered people. Can anything good come from Nazareth? And the answer is yes, but only because the mighty one has stretched out his arm. And that whole song, Mary never celebrates herself. What she says over and over is, look what God has done for me. And, and this is what strikes me about that this morning. Can anything good come from? And I wonder if you're sitting here this morning wondering, can anything good come from my life? And I don't know your life, and I don't know why you might think that. But I know I've been at that place in my life at times. Where you wonder, look at me. I know my failures. I know my sins. I, I know how I hurt those around me. I know how I let down God. I, I know all these things. Can anything good come from Anthony? Can anything good come from the Webbers? Can anything good come from the Krugers? Or the Smiths? Or the Childs? And I could go on and on. I'm not trying to pick on y'all. Yes, if God's mighty hand is at work in you. Do you hear the message of hope in this song? If God is at work in you, if his mighty arm is fighting for you, the answer to the question, can anything good come from my life? The answer is yes. We never count ourselves out in the kingdom of God. We never give up in the kingdom of God. We never assume that we have done something that is going to make our lives irrelevant for the kingdom. 
Because at those moments when we are at our lowest and we recognize our emptiness and our neediness and our inability and our brokenness and all those things, and we cry out to a merciful Savior, the mighty arm of God is flexed on our behalf. Don't give up. Don't be discouraged. It's a revolutionary way of thinking and living with Jesus at the center. It's about seeing and experiencing God's mercy, God's strength, God's grace in our life, and then knowing how to show that to others on his behalf. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he's to be called John. And they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. And then they made signs or gestures to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. And immediately, his mouth was opened, and his tongue was loosed. And he began to speak, praising God. Notice, by the way, God's taking away his speech for a time did not bring about bitterness in Zacharias. Something important happened during that time. Zacharias apparently did not shake his fist at the heavens and say, how dare you? Lots of people have pointed out because of Zacharias' age, he may well have been very hard of hearing or even deaf before that because the people gesture and sign to him as if that was maybe a normal thing. I don't know. Zacharias could have had reason, I guess we could say, to be angry, but something happened in Zacharias. God did a work such that when he gets his speech back, his first thing is to rejoice and note his neighbors are filled with awe talking about things. There was something about that sign that the people recognized God is present in what's happening. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied. And this is what's called the Benedictus, our second song. And worship team, if you want to come on up. And this is taken from the first word of what he says, blessed be the Lord. The God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people, he's raised up a horn of salvation for us at the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. Oh, now he remembers Abraham. I'll bet Abraham had been on his mind a lot to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. It's the same song, second verse of Mary's song. It's a focus on Jesus as the Savior and Messiah. He's the one to be magnified. He's the one to be blessed. His song mentions David and Abraham, the two people in the Old Testament God made a covenant with that said, from your line I will bring a Savior. And Zacharias says, he's here. This is the fulfillment of that prophecy. 
And then he says about his son, and you, my child, this is John, who will be John the Baptist. You will be called a prophet for the Most High, for you'll go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. That is beautiful. So John, while not the Savior, is the prophet who has the privilege of pointing people to the Savior. Other places in the New Testament say, we are all prophets in the kingdom of God. Dare I say, we have the privilege John had, and that is to prepare the way of the Lord for others, to give people the knowledge of God's salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. And as we, as prophets, speak prophetically into our culture about the salvation that Jesus brings, we shine light, the light of God's grace on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. And we point them toward the one who guides their feet into peace. So we need to close this morning. If we just read two songs, we need to sing. Uh, so I, I've asked the worship team if they'll lead us once again in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And if you can just use this as a time focusing on the gift of Jesus. It, the song says the ransoming Israel. It's ransoming those who were captive, those who were in darkness, who have now been set free. And our response is to sing a song of gratitude and joy. So if you would stand and join us as we sing a closing song this This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.